Hello and welcome fellow film buffs. This is your motherfucking host Hunter Europe, and I am here with fellow cinephile Zachary Droll. Hello, hello. Yippee ki yay. We are the box office losers. Each and every week we deep dive into the movie sphere and watch the greatest Christmas movie of all time. We watch and review any and all films to ever gracious over screen. This week we're talking about Die Hard. If you couldn't tell by me getting super excited. <laughs> And also, our last three weeks of episodes that we've been talking about it. <laughs> yeah. We, I wanted to keep it a secret, but Zach decided to spoil it, so now we're just going into it. <laughs> well, Merry Christmas, guys. <laughs> Merry Christmas, oh, yeah, I, I, I spoiled it because, like, I would like to give our audience a heads up when we have a double feature upon us. A double feature. Because yeah. that way they don't go like, oh, these assholes are just pumping out content just to get views. Yeah, it's all good. It is what it is. <sighs> so, Zach, do you want to hit us with that overview? Yeah, sure. Die Hard is a 1988 American action film directed by John McTiernan Tiernan. and written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. DeSouza. I hate DeSouza. I hate... Why do you give me Italian last names? I don't give you them. They're just real. Face it, Zach. Italian last names are real and you can't say otherwise. <laughs> it stars Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Alexander Gondov, Gondovov, and Bonnie... Fuck! Bad- God! <laughs> Badilia! Based on the 1979 novel uh, Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick uh, Thorpe. Which sounds like a uh, James Bond movie. Uh, uh, Die Hard follows New York City police officer John McClane Willis, who is caught up in a terrorist takeover of a Los Angeles skyscraper while visiting his estranged wife. For Christmas. It's a Christmas movie. Stop giving me Italian last names to read. I will never. You know what? Read the cast. Read the cast. Read the cast. No. No. <laughs> They have German <laughs> last names. That's even worse. <laughs> so I'll read the cast then. So we have Bruce Willis as John McClane. Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber. Uh, Alexander God- Godunov as Carl. Bonnie Delia uh, Bidelia as Holly Gennaro McClane. Reginald Vale Johnson as Al Powell. Paul Gleason as Dwayne T. Robinson. Uh, Duvrow White as Argyle. Uh, William Atherton as Richard Thornburg. Dick Thorne. Uh, Clarence Gilliard as Theo, the hacker. Hart uh, Boucher as Harry Ellis, Captain Cocaine. And James Shigeta as Joseph Yoshinobu Takagi. Is that how Argyle is like the second best limo driver next to Nathan? <laughs> yeah, it goes, it goes Nathan for you, and then it goes Argyle. <laughs> I'm not wrong. <laughs> Argyle is fucking great, but nobody remembers him. He's one of, like, the great characters. Like, him and Al are, like, one of the best characters in that movie. All right, Mm -hmm. so the budget was 25 to 35 million, and we got a box office of 139.8 to 141.5 million dollars. This movie went through so many weird notes that, um, I don't know if I have all of them in here, but I'm gonna do two really quick. So, first up, um, the the, the book, the, uh, the movie is based off a book called Nothing Lasts Forever, which is actually in a trilogy, and the original movie was adapted in the 60s, and Frank Sinatra was the main character of that one. He played the character of, quote, John McClane, I forget who it was, though. And then he was, uh, he signed a contract that let him, um, he was offered the role first, he was given first rejection, essentially, 
where they knew he was too old, but because of his contract, they had to call him up. And when they called him up, he was like, I'm too old to do that shit, but thanks for calling me because it's in the contract. So that's really cool that we're, we're going to see potentially Frank Sinatra as Sean McClain. And, um, and the posters actually didn't originally have Bruce Willis on it until the initial screenings of um, the movies where people finally accepted Bruce Willis as an action star, so then they redid the posters with his face on it. So, funny thing is, like, well, not really a funny thing, so... Um, I learned I think, that from um, the movies that made us. So, with the poster, or mainly just, like, the overall, like, the VHS box that it came in, um, I, I think I'm in my in my house somewhere, I think my dad's room, we have a sealed copy. Nice, dude. And the, and the reason why you. it's also sealed <laughs> is also because, like, um, if you look at it, so the Nakatomi building, when it's exploding, kind of looks like the Twin Towers. Yep, that's why the poster looks really weird. So that's why we still have a sealed copy. Dude, and I will I, find and that, I, I will se- steal it. <laughs> and w- when I say sealed, I mean factory, like, cellotane still on it. That is awesome. I need to see that with my eyes, bro. That's I'm not crazy. sure if, if my dad has it or my mom has it, but I know we we, we have a sealed copy of Die Hard. Give me the but, shield copies. Um, on top of that, uh, so I, um, so my dad went to Fye one day and he saw that Fye had the collecting like the collector's edition of Die Hard, and it came with a scale model of the Nakatomi building. Oh, jealous! You gotta send me a picture of that. I will. Uh, it'll, it'll also be on screen if I actually remember to do for this one. Well, if you send me a picture of it, you'll remember because it'll be in our chat. Yeah. But all right, um, let's just dive into the notes. I will this is not gonna be, be a goddamn doozy. It, yeah, um, so guys, uh, if you're not if you're not too fond of our long ones, just uh, sit back, grab some popcorn, maybe have this play in the background while you're hanging out with your family since today is Christmas. I think in 2021, me and you are gonna try to do uh, watch alongs at some point. I'm gonna yes. announce that here now because I think that would be much more interesting. Well, what we could do is I know. Twitch has a feature where we can watch Amazon Prime movies. No, I mean, like, me and you just uh, come on the podcast and go, all right, guys, we're about to hit play on the movie in 3, 2, 1, and then we just talk about it over it. Oh, so kind of do kind of like... Like a, like a director's it. commentary. So, so kind of like do something well, like pretty much it does and like kind of like they just have the movie playing, they, they talk over it. and Yeah, I think that adds a little bit more fun to it. We'll see. Well, like, it's something well, to try out. That, that, that's if it's a film that either I haven't seen yet or you haven't seen yet. We should do that for. Or if it's Die Hard again. <laughs> okay, I will watch Die, Die Hard, Hard so many times. So, let's start off with the notes. Desperate for work, Stewart was offered a job adapting Thorpe's novel into a screenplay. He finished a draft and was greenlit immediately by 20th Century Fox, which was eager for a summer blockbuster the following year. Which this movie came out in the summer and it was a Christmas movie. Finding a star proved difficult. The role of McLean was offered to a host of decades' top stars, including Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, all who turned it down. Willis, who was known mostly for his TV work, was eventually chosen and paid only $5 million for the role, an unheard-of figure at the time, and attracted considerably controversy towards the film prior to its release. Filming began in November 1987 on a $25 million to $35 million budget, with McTiernan and DeSouza uh, made alterations to the script throughout the film including adding and changing scenes and altering the ending a little bit. Die Hard was filmed almost entirely on location in and around the Fox Plaza in L.A. 
Die Hard was a box office success, grossing between 139 uh, eight to 141.5 million dollars and defying pre-release expectations that willis's lack of star appeal would hurt the film's success it was a 10th it was the 10th highest grossing film of 1988 and the highest grossing action film initial reviews were mixed criticisms were uh, was leveled by the violence plot and willis's performance while mctiernan's direction and rickman's charismatic performance of villain hans gruber were praised die hard received four academy award nominations the film elevated willis to a leading man and took Rickman from relatively obscurity to celebrity. Alan oh. Rickman, this is his first big movie role. And yeah, it was think, him as a villain. Think about it. If if he would have never started this, we would have never got Professor Snape. It's probably well. true. Yeah. He was a theater actor, I believe. And then he tried out for this, and he was like, I don't really want to be a villain. But, you know, he did it, and he fucking takes it home. Oh, I would say, like, Hans, Hans Gruber. Gruber, like, for me, like, I, I've had this since, like, I've had this movie shoved down my throat a lot as a kid. Since my dad I actually never. Hard. My dad likes this movie, but he never like shoved it down my throat a lot until um, I think I was like old enough to see it, and then I watched it, and I was like, "This is the greatest fucking movie of all time." And oh, then I watched it like every year. For me, it was like whenever, whenever it was on TV, that's it. Like n- nothing else goes on. We're watching the rest of it. That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I've had this movie shoved down my throat, but I'll, but I, I don't complain about it. I, I I see I, I see why a lot of people some people don't like it some people love it I I love Hans Gruber I'm, I'm how can you not like now. this movie I understand not liking the sequels but how can you not like this movie Well like for me now seeing it as an adult and now seeing it with more of a eye for for film mm-hmm. I, I I I like this film a lot I I don't see it as a perfect film it has it has its moments where I'm like uh but like but also like I. I, I I just like Hans Gruber. Hans Gruber is 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 one of my favorite like villains in like movie history. I think he's one of my favorites of all time. Period. <sighs> I'm excited. So, uh, in the wake of its release, Die Hard uh, has become critically reevaluated and is now considered to be one of the greatest action films ever made. It has also retroactively become one of the best Christmas films since the film's events take place on Christmas Eve. It was revitalized the action genre largely due to the depiction of McLean as a vulnerable and fallible protagonist. He's the everyman. In contrast to the muscle-bound and invincible action heroes of its contemporaries like Arnold Schwarzenegger. The film's success spawned a host of imitators such as the term uh, such that the term die hard in or on became a shorthand way of describing a film's plot. If you go check out my letterbox at Hunter Van Lear, you can see that I made a list of every movie that is die hard, but, and then it's a little twist. It's kind of cool. So, a little, particularly one where a lone hero must fight overwhelming odds, even in a restricted environment. Um, die hard is the first film that would become a franchise that includes four films, die hard Two, die hard with a vengeance, live for your die hard and a good day to die hard. Bad. Uh, video games, comic books, toys, board games, clothing, and collectibles deemed culturally and historically authentic significance by the Library of Congress. The film was registered in the preservation of the National Film Registry in 2017. I actually, like, um, I'm saying this here right now for future reference. I, I just watched Funhouse play the board game. Oh, they have a, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they, um, they are playing it on Tabletop Simulator. Die Hard does have a board game, and it's based off the first movie. That's awesome, and it's it seems like fun. So I'm saying this right now. We can, if we can get four other people to play the game, dude. Um, my la- my lady friend loves board games, and if I buy that, me, you, and we can get some other person to play with us. That'll be fun. <laughs> all right, dope. Um, th- there was a video game. Oh yeah, it was um it was called the Die Hard trilogy. It was on PS One. It was 
just like a bunch of mini games that were in the Die Hard game. Like there was one where you had to climb the building and shoot some guys. There was a car driving one. It's it, it's just a nice license tie-in. All right, cool. If I find that, I might get it. I do have a PlayStation Two that I can yeah, run some PS One games. I've been looking for it. If I see it, if I see two, I'll buy you one. <laughs> oh, dope! Thanks, man. Yeah. All uh, right. Read uh, us up with the next bit of notes. All right. Yeah, since you read a lot. <clears throat> The development of Die Hard began in 1987. Screenwriter Jeb Stewart was a was in dire financial strait and needed uh, paying work. He had successfully pitched a script to Columbus Pictures with Robert Duvall set to star. But the project was abandoned. Uh, a separate four script con a separate four script contract at Walt Disney Pictures was not uh, providing him with significant income. After submitting his first uh, contracted script to Disney, Stewart had six weeks when he could com- complete work for another studio. His agent, Jeremy Zimmer, uh, contracted Lloyd Levin, uh, the head of development at Golden at, at Gordon Company. Fuck. That feels like that that shouldn't end ab- abruptly like that, but well, no, because it continues into the next I know, paragraph. I know, but it's it, just separated. It, it feels like it shouldn't like abruptly do that, but. Yeah. So next paragraph, uh, the the Gordon Company worked as a uh, production arm, uh, as a producing arm for the 20th Century Fox, and Levin had a property that Stewart could work on, um, an adaptation of the 1978 novel *Nothing Lasts Forever*, written by former police officer Roderick Thorpe. Um, after purchasing the uh, adaptation rights for the novel before it had been written, Fox had adapted the book's 1966 predecessor, *The Detective*. For the 1968 film of the same name, starring Frank Sinatra as an NYPD detective, uh, John John Le- Le- uh, Leland, fuck. There you go. I know I I should know that last name because that's my friend's name. Um, the detective had been uh, considered groundbreaking for its time, showing a more realistic take on police work uh, than other Hollywood fare. The torching of the, the touching on taboo themes like homosexuality and infidelity, Thorpe was inspired to write Nothing Lasts Forever following a dream he had after watching the disaster film The Towering Inferno. Tight. That's pretty cool. <clears throat> Levin had attempted to develop the film for several years and offered Stewart the opportunity to do so. He gave Stewart creative freedom as long as he retain the Christmas as long as he retained the Christmas in Los Angeles setting Levin wanted to show it snowing because that was um, unusual the film was pitched as Rambo in a office building yeah uh, referring to the then the then successful Rambo film series uh, Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver Served as a producer, they as, as the producer they hired uh, hired director John McTammon because of his work with them on the successful 1987 action film Predator. Hell yeah! Before joining McTammon, uh, wanted to address the film's tone. He said, "My principal concern going in, uh, <clears throat> going in was into this was that it was a story that concerned." Uh, that concerned terrorists and uh, that condone is that concerned or condoned? Concerned. Concerned. All right. Concerned terrorists and terrorist movies that are usually mean, filled with all sorts of mean, nasty acts. And I didn't say yes to the project until we figured out ways to put in um, excess 
and with essence essence, some joy into it he basically said i didn't want to do a terrorist movie i wanted to do a yes uh, police comedy and that's what we got we really didn't get a police comedy. A, police, a good police comedy is Beverly Hills Cop. I thought you were going to say Police Academy. I was going to go, oh no, Zach. Police Academy is a good comedy as well. What the, the fuck the are you first, about? The first one is. The other seven aren't. <laughs> well, yeah, no. Like, I've seen no, the first no one, four. No one likes like the other like seven. Everyone only talks about the first one. Yeah. So, Stuart began working 18-hour days traveling from his house in Pasadena to his office in Walt Disney Studios in Burbank. Returning home only briefly to put his children to bed, he became exhausted, which left him feeling on edge. The situation uh, led to an argument with his wife. Afterwards, he went for a drive and accidentally hit a large refrigerator box on the road. It turned out to be empty, but the encounter had triggered a near-death experience for Stuart. He returned home to reconcile with his wife, but before he did that, he wrote 35 pages of Die Hard, and then he reconciled with his wife. He struggled to find a narrative that the core would capture the audience's attention, and after this accident, he realized that it should be about a stubborn man trying to reconcile with his wife. Stewart used marital strife and collapse uh, experiences on, of his peers to uh, shape McLean's marriage. John McLean was named John Ford initially, but 20th Century Fox felt it disrespected the deceased director of the same name. Stewart chose McLean as a good, strong Scottish name based on the Celtic heritage. He described the character as a flawed hero who learns a lesson in the worst possible situation and by the end becomes a better person, but not a different one. Having no experience writing action films, Stewart drew on his experience writing thrillers and focused on making his experience, uh, make the audience care about, hold on, where the fuck am I? He yeah, drew his experience writing thrillers and focused on making the audience care about John McClane, Holly, and their reconciliation. This is actually really cool because there are a lot of really tense moments and you can see that like, um, him writing tense movies kind of pays off in this because it's not... I wouldn't necessarily this is say this is an action action movie, but this is definitely an, an action thriller movie, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Levin helped Stewart pitch his story to studio execs, including Gordon. Gordon left the, uh, this is Gordon Company. Gordon left the meeting shortly after it had begun, telling Stewart just to go ahead and write the script and finish the first draft five and a half weeks later. Do you want to um, the next one? Do you want me to keep going? I got it. Uh, Stewart credited Levin as an instrument, an instrumental in helping him to understand nothing lasts forever. Uh, many sequences from the novel were faithfully adapted by the film, including a CFR charge being thrown down an elevator shaft at at the central and the central character, John John Leland, leaping from the roof. However, the novel is told entirely from Leland's perspective. Um, events he is not presented and present for and that ah, wow fuck uh, events and he is not present for are not detailed so basically if they went with the original script uh for the movie we, we would have seen like we would have seen no hans gruber scenes until like the end because he doesn't meet hans gruber until like 90 percent through the film and then it's like the final showdown and that's it so it would have been really interesting to see, like, no Hans Gruber visibly. Um, its tone is... Well, that you would have worked a lot better for the scene. I don't think... I, I wouldn't have said better. I would have just said... Um, I don't know, because, like, the whole reason why we see Hans Gruber initially, and because of that scene where he gets the cigarettes and uses his American accent, it's not tense for McLean and Gruber. It's tense for the audience, because the audience knows that's the bad guy, and the audience knows that John McLean doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's like you're sitting there like John, John, that's Hans. You gotta shoot him. Don't believe his accent. That's fucking Hans. 
And like, oh man, it's so cool. I remember seeing that for the first time and I'm like, how does this motherfucker not know who Hans Gruber is? And then, oh man, it's just so cool. <laughs> its tone is also more cynical and... Nihilistic. Nihilistic. Thank you. That, I would have... Everyone knows. <laughs> Leland visits his drug-addicted daughter at the Klaxon building, and she dies having fallen from the building alongside villain um, Antoine Goober. Also Gruber, not, not Goober. Gruber, Goober, who cares? <laughs> Anton Gru- Goober! Uh, My name okay. is Hans Goober. <laughs> <laughs> Grouper is a terrorist using naive young males and female guerrilla soldiers to rob the building because of Klaxon support for a dictatorial dictatorial government. Dictatorial. Dictatorial. God, why do they do this to us? (laughs) Why are words real? (laughs) This made their motives less clear and Leland more uh, conflicted about killing them. Especially the woman, Leland, is is written as an experienced older man working as a higher, a high-powered security consultant. So basically the original film was uh, Joe Leland has to go to this building that's being attacked by terrorists where his daughter works, and his daughter ends up dying at the end. You know when Holly falls out of the building? Oh, where she's about to fall, but then yeah. um, they detach the watch? Apparently that's where the daughter was also supposed to fall and die. That's why they changed the ending to make it a little bit happier, and they also changed it from a daughter to a wife. And then and they brought they the daughter the, in to live free or die hard. Yeah, and I thought that was pretty cool. I was like, there she is. And they brought the son to the second one. Not yeah, second Jai one, the, uh, Yeah, Jai Courtney. And I was like, that's an interesting way to adapt who the son looks like. But, um, yeah, I like how they changed it to Hans. I don't like Anton. I think Anton is too evil. Anton sounds like a bad guy. Hans does not. Hans sounds like your friend. Do, do, do you think they're going to try to pass the torch over to Jai Courtney? After that's that that's what they that's what they wanted to do initially. They wanted to do um, a torch passing, and then that movie was so bad that they decided not to do it. And um, Bruce Willis said the only way he'll come back for a John McClane, uh, the movie McClane, is if it's a prequel and he does flashbacks and someone else plays the young John McClane. So I'm excited. I'll be to see down that. for that. Yeah, a lot of people think it's going to be Chris Pratt, but that's because Chris Pratt's the Hollywood hit list. Uh, he's the Hollywood hottie right now. So he's also an asshole, but <clears throat> he's not an asshole. He's just too Christian for his own good, and too conservative as well. Yeah, that's what I mean. The Christian makes it. The, his church makes him very conservative, and it's poopy. But he's a good Star Lord, and I can't knock him. But Star Lord's so, bisexual now. Hey, well, Star Lord was always kind of bisexual, but this is like a full confirmation that we got in the comic books when he was like, "I'm gonna bang this alien," and I was like, "Nice." I continue on because I am dying. So Stewart created new material for scenes when John McClane is not present. This allowed him to expand upon or introduce characters such as Al Powell. Uh, Powell's given a wife and children, allowing him to relate more closely to John McClane. Argyle, whose novel counterpart disappears early in the story, but is present throughout the script, supporting McClane by broadcasting rap music over the terrorist radios. And among the script's original characters and the unscrupulous journalist Richard Thornburg, um, a fan of the prominent Western film uh, actor John Wayne, Stewart was inspired to carry a Western theme throughout the film, including a cowboy lingo. Hello, cowboy. Uh, he also made friends with the cons- uh, construction superintendent at the under-construction... Um, Fox Plaza in LA giving him access to the building to gain ideas to how to lay out the characters and scenes he finished screenplay and was uh, delivered on Friday June 87 
It was greenlit Saturday, literally the next day, uh, in part because of um, the 20th Century Fox needing a big summer blockbuster for 88. Though the main character's name differs because Die Hard is based on the novel, uh, Detective Studios... Um, oh, here we go. The studio was contractually obligated to offer Frank Sinatra the role. Sinatra, who was 70 at the time, declined. The role was offered to stars including Schwarzenegger, Stallone, uh, Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, who I think would have been great in that role, Burt Reynolds, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson, Don Johnson, uh, Richard Dean Anderson, Paul Newman, and James Caan. There you go. Look at that. We tied Jeez. it into Elf. Jesus. <laughs> Guys, we are 24 minutes in and we're nowhere near done with the notes. <laughs> the prevailing action arc that's I'm gonna try to read fast. The prevailing uh, prevailing action archetype of the era was muscle-bound, invincible macho man like Arnold Schwarzenegger, an established star who would help them make Beatrice part of success. Schwarzenegger wanted to move away from the action films into comedy and turn down the role in the 19 19- <laughs> to star in Co- Twins with Danny DeVito. Uh, Willis, known mainly for his uh, comedic roles as Detective David Addison in romantic comedy television Moonlighting, starring opposite Sybil Shepard. Uh, though the producers weren't his first choice, he declined the role because he was contractually obligated for Moonlighting. However, when Shepard became pregnant, um, the show's production was started for 11 weeks, giving Willis enough time to take the role. Dude, I could imagine if we didn't get Bruce Willis as John McClane. I, I I would be like very interested to see like the picks from other like Nick Nolte, Burt Reynolds. I think it would have been Harrison Ford if um they couldn't get uh, John McClane. I think they would have offered him more money because Harrison Ford is the only one on that list who I could see doing it who was young enough at the time to like fit the role and also continue the legacy. That's just me also, personally Cl- though. I I think Clint Eastwood would have been a good one as well. I think Clint Eastwood would have been too actiony though because he was known for all those western action movies. But also, I I would have just loved to hear him talk shit to Hans Gruber over the radio. That would have been great. You're feeling lucky, punk. You Come feeling on. lucky, Hans. I think they actually say that. You're feeling lucky, Hans. I think that's supposed to be a reference to him. Because think about it. And even if he calls him a cowboy. Yeah, I know. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. So... McTiernan's then-girlfriend happened to be sitting on the plane next to the representative at CinemaScore. She asked them to provide data analysis to show if Willis could work as a star. The resulting data showed that casting Willis would not uh, would not have a negative impact. This participation confirmed two weeks later. The choice was controversial. Willis had only started one other film, the moderately successful Blind Date, which was a fucking rom-com. Uh, there was also a clear distinction between film and TV. Uh, for the love of Ghostbusters, it demonstrated that TV actors could lead... Um, and so could like Shelley Long and Bill Cosby have failed in their recent uh, transitions. Willis received $5 million, a figure virtually unheard of even for act- major stars at the time. That defines Hollywood's hierarchy by giving Willis a comparable salary to more successful actors like Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, and Robert Redford. Ooh, gotta give me time to breathe. Then 20th Century Fox president Leonard Goldberg uh, justified the figure by saying Die Hard needed an action uh, needed an actor of Willis's potential. Gordon said that Willis's everyman persona was essential for conveying that the hero could actually fail. Other Fox sources were reported as saying that the studio was desperate to find a star after the band being turned down by so many popular actors. Willis said they paid me what they thought I was worth for the film and for them. He described um, the character as unlike the larger-than-life character portrayed by Stallone or Schwarzenegger. He said. Even though he's a hero, he's just a regular guy. He's just an ordinary guy who's been thrown into extraordinary circumstances. Willis drew upon his working-class upbringing in South Jersey for his character, including the attitude of the disrespected authority, that gallows sense of humor, and the reluctant hero. His disrespect for authority is fucking crazy. When um, the first time uh, he's talking to uh, the... Nah, it's when the, uh, the 
the commissioner takes the walkie-talkie from Pal, yes. and he's like, he's like, all right, shut the fuck up, put Pal back on, or I ain't talking. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, he does not care. I will, I will read this paragraph, and then I'll, I'll read three paragraphs for you. Alan Rickman. So, so, so that gives you time to get a drink of water. Yeah, I got my juice right here. All right. Rickman was already... Wow, that was loud. R- Rickman was already in his early 40s as he made his screen debut as Hans Gruber. Uh, he was cast by Silver, who had seen him perform in a Broadway version of Les Lesion... Les Liaisons Dangerouses. Thank you. Playing the villainous... Uh, Vicomte de Valmont. <laughs> thank you. Um, Beldelia <laughs> was... Beldelia. Uh, Beldelia was a cast at Willis's... Was cast at as Was cast at Willis's suggestion. He had seen uh, her in her Golden Globe Award nomination performance in the 1983 biopic film heart like a wheel uh val johnson was also appeared in her first major film role um in his first major in his first major film role he was cast as the suggestion of suggestion of casting director jackie birch um which whom he had worked previously uh robert duvall Gene Hackman and Lawrence uh, Fishburn, Fishburn, yeah. yeah, was considered for the role. Alice is portrayed by uh, Hart. Fuck. Boucher, Bo- uh, Boschner. Boschner, who was uh, an acquaintance of Silver. Thank you. I I, I was trying to read where I was, and I'm going blind. <laughs> well, was an acquaintance of Silver. His role was short in shot uh, was shot in chronological order over three weeks McTamon wanted the character to be uh, suave like actor Cary uh, Grant Cary Grant thank you I was very confused by that for a moment Cary Grant but Boschner um, uh, convinced uh, convinced of the character's motivation coming from the cocaine use and insecurity. McTamon hated the performance initially until he noticed Gordon and Silver were entertained by Borschner's antics. Yeah, he was basically like this unknown guy who was just like an acquaintance of one of the executive producers. And they were like, put my friend in the film. He's great. And he's like, yeah, but I wanted Harry to be charismatic. And then they were like, nah, he does cocaine. He's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to get to my notes about him. Uh, <laughs> Screenwriter, screenwriter Stephen E. DeSova, DeSouza, uh, rewrote Stewart's script as he had prior experience in um, blending action and comedy. He approached the story from the view that Gruber is the protagonist. He said, "If Gruber had not planned the robbery, robbery, and put it together, McLean would have just gone to the party and, and reconciled or not with his wife." You should sometimes think about looking at your movie through the point of view of the villain who is really driving the narrative. That's it's a good thing to used... think about while writing. What was that? That's a good thing to think about while writing. Oh, it is. The Sosa used blueprints of Fox Plaza to help lay out the story and character location within the building. Well, like, the Fox Plaza or the Nakatomi building, as we all would just call it at this point, is actually still a building in Los Angeles. 
Yeah, we can go to it, except they don't like it when you do. <laughs> yeah, but fuck it. Who cares? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a famous building. And it's a famous movie building as well, not just being a famous building itself. Yeah. <laughs> so, the script continued to undergo changes up to and during filming. Several subplots and character beats were created because the early filming Willis was still working simultaneously on Moonlighting. He would film the show for up to 10 hours and then work on Die Hard at Night. As the situation was expected to continue for at least another week, McTiernan opted to give Willis's time off to rest and tasked DeSouza with adding some scenes they could film in the interim. He's included scenes with Holly's housekeeper, an introductory scene for Thornburg, and moments between Powell and his fellow officers. The scene where Holly confronts Gruber in the wake of Takagi's death was also added during this time, which is a really cool scene. I have it written down in my notes that, like, Hans isn't, like, a, the worst person ever. He's oh, he's, he's pretty bad, but, like, he's a pretty reasonable terrorist. Yeah, I, I think so I had I that, that down that was pretty as well. cool. Yeah, I was, like, I was like, he's a bad guy, but, like, he's not the worst bad guy. Yeah, so. he, he cares about pregnant people. Yeah. Um, Silver wanted a scene between John McClane and Gru and Hans Gruber before the f- film's uh, denouement, denouement, which is like before they meet for the first time, like officially and like guns ablaze. Mm. Souza could not think of an idea that would allow the pair to meet without killing one another. Between takes, Souza heard Rickman affecting, uh, yeah, affecting an American accent to a crew member. He realized that the accent would let Gruber disguise himself when he met McClane. McTiernan discounted the idea as McLean would see Gruber's face while observing him murder Takaki. That scene had not been filmed yet, and it was reworked to conceal Gruber's identity from McLean. Due to the addition of Gruber-McLean meeting scene, a different scene in which McLean kills Theo was excised? Damn, even I didn't know a word. Um, In Stewart's original script, Die Hard took place over three days. McTiernan was inspired to make it take place over one single night by Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Awesome. He did not want to use terrorists as a villain. He considered them to be too mean. McTiernan avoided um, focusing on the terrorist politics in favor of making them thieves driven by monetary pursuits. He felt he would um, make it more suitable summer entertainment. Oh, McLean's there. Oh, there. We're almost to the plot. (laughs) McLean's character was not fully realized until almost halfway through the production. McTiernan and Willis had determined that McLean is a man who does not like himself as uh, much, but is doing the best he can in a bad situation. McLean's catchphrase, Zipikaye, motherfucker, was inspired by old cowboy lingo to emphasize an all-American character. There is uh, was a debate over whether to use Yippikaye, motherfucker, or Yippitaye, motherfucker. I don't know why, who cares? Uh, DeSouza wrote the catchphrase based on the cowboy Roy Rogers' own Yippikaye, kids. Which, Roy Rogers, that comes from a little bit of a Christmas story. Just a little bit. Kind Where's, of, not really, but yeah. Kind of. Well, because Roy Rogers was inspired to be the uh, the guy who made the, who had the gun. Yes. Uh, principal photography began in November of 1987. The budget was 25 to 35 million. Filming took place entirely in the Fox Plaza, situated in the Avenue of the Stars. The location was decided upon production by Jackson uh, Degovia, who was a production designer. A building was needed that both was available and unoccupied. The construction of uh, Fox Plaza had both. Cinematographer Jean Debont said that only four or five stories were occupied at the time. Extensive negotiations secured the building for filming in the two main conditions. No filming during the day and no damage from explosions, which was a huge thing that they had to try to avoid. They literally almost blew up the entire roof at one point. Oh, dope. Um, Debont said the building's design was distinct, making it a character of its own, which is why the Nakatomi building is like such a huge thing. Clear views of the building were available from a distance, enabling establishing shots as McLean approaches it, which is a really cool scene. Uh, Because Die Hard was filmed on a location, the surrounding city um, could seem to be within the building, enhancing the realism. 
DuPont frequently used handheld cameras to film closer character shots uh, to create more cinematic intimacy. Very little of the film storyboard was uh, was storyboarded beforehand. DuPont said the in- the intricate storyboarding made his job redundant. Instead, he and McTiernan would discuss that day's filming in detail and the filming and sensation that they wanted to portray. DeBont was more concerned with creating a dramatic rather than a attractive shot. He cited that, yeah, there's a lot of ugly shots in this, but it makes it um, dramatic. Oh, yeah. Like when they just zoom in on, like, John McClane sweating everywhere. Uh, he cited to use real flares in the film um, that regenerated unpredictable smoke and sometimes obscured the image. Willis's first day was on November of 87, uh, when he came straight from filming Moonlight to shoot one of the more pivotal scenes where McLean leaps from a rooftop and it explodes behind him. Saved by a length of a hose pipe, Willis found acting in Die Hard different from previous experiences, and he was used acting against another actor, but in Die Hard he was alone for many of his scenes, taking himself and others via radio, talking to himself, oh, he talks to himself a lot, and others via the radio. He did not spend much time with the rest of the cast between takes, opting to spend with his partner Demi Moore, uh, in contrast on their, uh, on... Yeah, to their own on-screen dynamics, but Delia and uh, Val Johnson spent most of their time between scenes with Rickman. That's cool. Uh, okay, we're on the home stretch. No, 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 we're not. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh. Zach, do you want to read a paragraph? Um, yeah. Let me just see. Okay, we're about like ten more paragraphs left. <laughs> oh yay! I think. Um, the film's ending is where we're at. The film's ending had not been finalized when filming began. In the finished film, Theo uh, retrieves an ambulance from the from the truck the terrorist arrives in to use as an escape vehicle. As this was a late uh, decision, the truck uh, the truck the terrorists are shown arriving in was too small to hold an ambulance. An additional scene showing the terrorists uh, synchronizing their tag uh, hero watches up. To, Synchronizing their watches. Did they really have to put the fucking brand in there? Yeah. <laughs> also, so the truck was empty. The scene had to be deleted. This led to the other necessary changes as scripted... As scripted, McLean realized that an American hostage uh, he encountered is Gruber because of the... Uh, because of the distinctive watch. Mm-hmm. Um, he had seen on the other terrorists. The watches were no longer an established plot point. However, it uh, necessitized the introduction of a heroic scene for Argyle, who gets to stop Theo's escape. Um, uh, Argyle actually <laughs> punched. You didn't even try. Nope. <laughs> it's <Devo. laughs> actually actually punched um, Theo during the scene. Which was added in, which was added in only in the last ten days of filming. I've told you I'm not gonna fucking attempt anything anymore. <laughs> last ten days of filming. Uh, there were flexibilities with some roles depending on the actor's performance. Some characters were kept in their film in the film longer, and others killed off sooner. The actors were given some room to improvise, like Theo's line, "The quarterback is toast." Which is a great um, line. Um, Boschner's Hans, Bubby, I'm your white knight. Also a good line. And henchman Uli stealing the chocolate bar during the SWAT assault. Also a great scene. <laughs> He's like, oh. He just takes the bar and goes, oh, nice. Ugh. 
Do you want me so, to read this? I'll, I'll, I'll read this one then. Okay. You read the next I'll one. I'll plow through a bunch of them. During filming, McTamin, uh, Debon, and first assistant director Benjamin Rosenberg became trapped in an elevator. After 30 minutes, a team of stuntmen arrived to help them escape via the roof hatch and cross over the other elevator uh, park next to it. McTamin uh, took stylistic influences from French New Wave cinema. When editing the film, he recruited Frank J. Ush, uh, Euroste and John F. Link to edit scenes together while in mid-motion. Uh, this was contrary of the mainstream style of editing used at the time. The film Final Cut runs at 132 minutes. Before like hiring... Two hours and 13 minutes total. <laughs> Before hiring composer Michael uh, Kamen, McTammon uh, knew one musical piece he wanted to include, Beethoven's Knife Sympathy, commonly known as Ode to Joy, as in the da 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 um, Having heard it in Stanley Kubrick's uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, Kamen uh, objected to using this piece in an action film. He offered to uh, Monsieur... Uh, he offered misuse. to misuse German composer Richard Wagner's music instead of tarnishing that of Beethoven. Once McTavish explained how the knife sympathy had had been used in a Clockwork Orange to highlight the ultra violence, uh, Kamen had a better understanding of McTavish's intentions. In exchange, Kamen insisted that they also license the use of uh, a singing in the rain. Um, 1952, that was also used in A Clock for Orange and Winter Wonderland, 1934. Uh, he mixed the melodies of Ulta Joy, Winter Wonderland, and Singing in the Rain into his score, mainly to underscore the villain, the villains. The samples of Ulta Joy are played in slightly lower key to sound more menacing. Uh, the reference build to full performance of the song when Gruber finally accesses Nakatomi Vault. The score also references Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. Hell yeah. So when Kamen first saw Die Hard, it was largely incomplete, and he was unimpressed. He saw the film as primarily about a phenomenal bad guy uh, may, uh, who made John McClane seem less important. Kamen was dismissive of film scores, believing that they uh, did not stand alone from the film. Even so, he admitted there were tracks from his Die Hard score that he liked. His original score incorporated uh, Piss Oh my god. Pizzicato and uh, Arco strings, brass, woodwinds, and sleigh bells adding to the daring moments of menacing encounter uh, for the festive meeting. Christmas, bitch. There's also another classical um, diegetic song in the film. The musicians play um, Concerto Number no. 3 by Johann Sebastian Bach. McTiernan did not like uh, a Cayman piece created for the final scene where Carl emerges from the building to kill McLean. He decided to use a contemporary track that was already in place, a temporary track that was already in place, a piece unused from the composer um, James Horner's work on Aliens. Uh, cues also used from uh, Man on Fire. Like Aliens, Cayman's score was edited significantly, and the music samples looped over and over. Uh, cues added to scenes. Uh, the film features Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC, which is fucking great. Was that also would, uh, in um the, the the night before? Uh, I believe so. It would go on to be considered one of the Christmas classics and be part of it in the film. The perception of the film's stunts had changed shortly due to production of Die Hard beginning uh, following an accident on set of the Twilight Zone, the movie that had also killed several actors. A push was made to prioritize crews 
film's crew over the value of the film itself. Even so, Willis insisted on performing many of his own stunts, which is dumb, uh, including rolling down steps, making tall leaps, and being positioned on top of an active elevator. Willis suffered from permanent two-thirds hearing loss in his left ear during a stunt in the film. The first scene was shot uh, from him leaping off the Nakatomi Plaza with a fire hose around his waist. The stunt involved a 25-foot leap from a five-story parking garage uh, that led onto a 60-foot airbag. Uh, a wall of flame exploded behind him, considering to be one of his toughest stunts. Willis was coated in fire-retardant liquid to protect him from the flames. The explosive force pushed him forward to the edge of the airbag, and the crew was almost concerned that he died. Stunt ba- uh, stuntman Camp Ben stood in for Willis for when his character was hanging from the building. Um, so, uh, about the Twilight Zone, yeah, like, it killed several actors and killed kids as well. That, that scene that happened on that set. I don't remember that. What scene was it in the Twilight Zone movie? Um, I think it was like uh, when a helicopter fell. Oh my god! If it, if anything, we'll, we'll watch the Twilight Zone as well. And I, yeah, we'll watch Twilight Zone movie at some point. Yeah, that, that way we can get a better understanding of that scene because I, I know it's been on every single top ten like m- mishaps on movie sets. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, we're up to a set was used. Yep. A set was used for the following scenes where McLean shoots out a window to re-enter the building. It was shot approximately halfway into the filming schedule so that it all, invo- it all involved had gained more sun experience. The window was made out of fragile sugar glass that took two hours to set up. There were only a few takes for this reason. A team of stuntmen positioned below the window dragged the hose pipe and pulled Willis towards the edge, hence why he was pulling very slowly. Uh, stuntmen were per- preferred over a hoist as they uh, were preferred over a hoist, as they could better control Willis' fall if he went over the edge. The scene where McLean falls down a ventilation shaft and catches onto a lower opening was the result of Willis' stuntman accidentally falling further than intended. Uh, Frank, uh, is that? Erosite. Erosite. Okay, Frank kept the scene where he worked on the, when he worked on the editing. I think that was a really cool uh, decision that they made. You can, you should definitely, Zach, check out, um, Die Hard, a movie that made us. This goes over a lot of what we're talking about now in better detail, and you can see it visually. It is awesome. I might watch it again, just because. I, I might watch it, to be honest, I think. I, I think I was watching the Home Alone, not, yeah, the Home Alone one. Yeah. Originally. Uh, so, from Gruber's fall from the Nakatomi Plaza, Rickman was dropped between 20 and 70 feet. Reports are inconsistent. Uh, he was suspended on a raised platform and then dropped on a blue screen airbag. This allowed the background behind him uh, to be composited by an optical printer with footage from uh, Fox Plaza. The footage uh, of a cannon shot confetti that um, looked like falling uh, bear bonds. Oh, Rickman fell backwards onto the bag, something that a stuntman had to avoid control their fall. Um, even so, McTiernan convinced Rickman by demonstrating the stunt himself and falling onto a pile of cardboard boxes. Rickman was told he would be dropped at the count of three, but they let go one second too early to get his genuine reaction. McTiernan said there's no way we could fake that. The first take was used, and McTiernan convinced Rickman to perform a second shot as a backup. Oh, dude, that scene where he, like, when he's actually falling is genuine terror because they thought... Because he was like, oh no, they dropped me too early. Holy fuck. Oh, it was so cool. That's such like, it's just a genuine Oh moment. yeah, I, I th- that is my favorite, like, fact about this movie. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. Like, it, it, I can't, because Rick, Rickman was afraid of heights, too. So it was just so cool to see. Well, like, yeah, but it's, 
Well, okay, okay, so honestly, it dropped off from a 20-70-foot platform. Jesus. Yeah, here we go. Capturing the stunt was difficult because Rickman was dropped at a rate of 32 feet per second, and it was impossible for a human operator to refocus the camera manually quickly enough to prevent the image from blurring as he fell away. Supervised by visual effects producer Richard Edlund, Boss Film Studios engineered an automated system that could relay information from an encoder on the camera that would consistently calculate the necessary changes in focus to operate a motor on the camera's focus ring to make that change. A camera with a wide-angle lens shooting 270 frames per second was used, creating footage that played 10 times slower than normal. Despite the invocations, um, the innovations, uh, the camera struggled to keep up with Rickman entirely out of focus, falling during 1.5 seconds. The scene cuts away from Rickman are used uh, as runouts. A stuntman in, in a slow fall rig was lowered to complete the fall because they just dropped him only 70 feet and the rest was like, stuntman. It's yeah. crazy, though. Um, it's crazy. Uh, well, it, it's the months of negotiating took place? Yeah. Okay, months of negotiating took place before permission was given to drive a SWAT vehicle up the steps of the Fox Plaza. As the script required, the railing knocked over during shooting was never replaced. Wow. Got him. (laughs) (laughs) Can we do this, please? Alright, just don't destroy anything. Just don't blow shit up. (laughs) The vehicle was detonated during the scene, although the rocket fired by the terrorists were small explosive moving along a guided wire. In the scene where McLean throws C4 down an elevator shaft to stop the assault, the effects uh, team blew out every window on one floor of the building. They were unsure what was going to happen until they did this stunt. God, a lot of this was like, yeah, let's just fucking do it, man. Yeah, they're like, they told us not to blow stuff up, but... Who cares? Right? What are they going to do? Fire us? <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> the final helicopter scene <laughs> took six months of preparation, and only two hours were set aside to film it. It took three attempts above Fox Plaza and nine camera crews filming the 20, uh, 24 different cameras. Uh, DeBont uh, said that the different angles um, enhance on-location realism. Only crews were allowed within 500 feet. Of the flight path, dude. They had they had two hours to fly like forty minutes, and they had to do it like three times. And they had to fly within buildings because they couldn't fly too high. So they legit like almost crashed helicopters into buildings while filming this fucking movie. Oh, I love it. We all, we yeah. love to hear it. <laughs> we God. love to hear danger. <laughs> and yeah, like for for a film that has a blockbuster hit and it had like a like a like a million dollar budget. It they, was they, worth it. <laughs> they were so reckless. <laughs> uh. Motor-like devices filled with propane were used for explosions. They took 10 minutes to install and offered a six-second burst of flames. The only miniature effect used in a recreation of the Nakatomi rooftop that is destroyed, uh, McTamin uh, employed the weapon specialist from Predator to pick uh, the guns used in the film uh, because uh, uh, Fritz was that just say fr- oh just Fritz. Say Fritz okay yeah thank you <laughs> Fritz was um, an experienced actor and filmed and was behind and filming was behind schedule an American Indian stuntman was put in a blonde wig and equipped with squibs to capture the character's death in one take it was weird 
To prevent the uh, <laughs> the in-building location looking similar because of the standard uh, fluorescent office lights, uh, DeBont considered uh, small film lights in high locations. He controlled these to create more dynamic and dramatic lighting. He placed fluorescent light tubes on the floor in one scene to indicate they had not been installed. This gave him an opportunity to use unusual light positioning. Uh, the, uh, the shifting nature of the filming script meant some sets were designed before it was known that they were to be used for. That's really cool. You love to see when they do like a lot of that weird shit where they're just like, yeah, I saw that these uh, lights were on the floor, so I'm going to fuck with the lighting now because I can do whatever I want. <laughs> be on note, folks, we're still in the notes. Yeah. So the Nakatomi building's 30th floor where the hostages are held was uh, was on the first few sets. It contained a recreation of Frank Lloyd Wright's... Div- uh, oh, my God. This is unimportant. Um, the Nakatomi logo was uh, reminiscent of a swastika. The final design was closer to a samurai warrior helmet. Swastikas meant peace and other things, not, um, you know, Hitler. A 380-foot-long matte painting provided the city uh, backdrop and viewed... Uh, by 30 floors of the building. It featured animated lights for daytime and nighttime. Um, however, expectations uh, for Die Hard were low compared to action films that it was competing with. The Schwarzeneggers starred Red Heat and Clint Eastwood's The Deadpool. Uh, the New York Times noted that Die Hard and comedies Pee Wee Herman's ba- <laughs> Big Top Pee Wee Herman and uh, Bull Durham were closely scrutinized by the industry's success and failure. Die Hard was singled out as Willis's Salary and failure earlier in the year with the Western Sunset with his previous film, which brought into question the capability of him as leading man. Lawrence Gordon agreed that by not using a major action star like Stallone or Eastwood, audience interest of Die Hard would lower as much as it's been. Uh, larger salaries paid to these stars were built on the built-in audience that they would attract to the films with a good word of mouth uh, supporting of the theaters. Willis did not have that. Willis featured prominently in the film's, film's early marketing campaign, but it underwent several changes as the film's release date drew newer uh, drew nearer. At the time, Willis had developed a reputation for as an arrogant actor concerned with his own fame. His refusal to address this and speak about his personal life on the media had reinforced his perception. For his part, Willis said that he wanted the media to focus on his acting. They were not. Uh, there, there were reports um, that would moan at Willis's appearance in the trailers. A representative would. Um, a representative from an unnamed theater chain pulled the trailer in response. Uh, research by several film studios revealed that the audiences had a negative opinion of Willis overall and little to no interest in him seeing Die Hard. Uh, Newsweek's David Anson, which I think we had a uh, review from him last week, called Willis the most unpopular actor to ever get $5 million for working on a movie. No, we, we just had this review uh, <laughs> yesterday. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. In, in the Elf episode. <clears throat> yep. So, as 20th Century Fox's confidence in Willis' appeal faltered, the film's posters were changed to focus on the Nakatomi Plaza with Willis's name removed from billing in tiny, uh, only receiving it in tiny print. Willis' image was not included in the first full-page newspaper advertisement in mid-July. 20th Century Fox domestic distribution and marketing president uh, Tom Shirak denied that Willis was being hidden, saying that their marketing strategy had changed when they realized the building was as important as character as the actor. <laughs> Lies. <laughs> Defying expectations, sneak previews of the film were well-received by audiences. The, f- uh, the week following its release, the advertising was changed to feature Willis more prominently. Despite his dislike um, of interviews, Willis appeared on several daytime shows to promote the film, explaining why he was more involved with the promotion of Die Hard. Willis said, I'm excited about the film. To me, it represents why I wanted to be an actor. This is like his big, this is a big break, honestly. 
Vincent Canby said it would appeal to the audiences who require a consistent stream of explosions and loud noises, saying it would be the perfect movie for our time. He described it as an intense by f- uh, but fleeting experience akin to snorting pure oxygen. Hal Henson like um, called it relentlessly oxygen. thrilling but not fun to watch. Lies. Uh, Richard Schnickel, Schnickel said um, the action genre had no future if it continued to offer bigger and better explosions and noises. However, I don't know how, was a uh, positive saying fire-powered, blood-drenched action picture. Uh, Tom called it. Now, these are all just people giving re- good to poor reviews. Um, uh, Tom called it cynical and criticized the story for undermining the humanity and warmth between McLean's Powell's friendship and having Powell's redemption by shooting child uh, by shooting a child come from violently shooting Carl. Henson felt the audience is manipulated into cheering for that act. Uh, nah, it's great redemption. Fuck you, Tom. Uh, critics were conflicted over Willis's performance. Uh, Howe said it elevated the film to a level of action stars like Beverly Hills Cop and *The Weapon*. Tom agreed with Willis's turned him into a credible star and demonstrated a comedic range. Uh, more reviews, more reviews. Rickman's performance was mainly praised. They said he's the perfect snake. He was very sneering. Um, he was uh, had a good for smiling uh, dementia of actor John McCready. Um, Rickman, they said he was over the top. And uh, a lot Snickle of it, a said lot of that it's just reviews. A lot of it's just people praising how great it was. Um, Gleason. Uh, no, Ebert stated, uh, cited that the character was uh, willfully unle- useless and dumb um, for, uh, for Powell and uh, obstruction that wasted screen time and derailed the film from being tightly plotted as needed for a successful thriller. McTiernan's directed was frequently praised as well. Uh, Cinema score gave it an A plus on the A plus to F scale. This is basically like a perfect 10, so hell yeah. Um... At the 1989 uh, Academy Awards, Die Hard received four nominations for Best Film Editing, uh, Best Visual Effects, uh, Best Sound Effects, and Best Sound in general. Uh, but it did not win anything. Um, the, later in the year, it did win a BMI TV Film Music, uh, TV Film Music Award uh, that Michael Kamen won for his score. Die Hard remains the highly the highest critically rated film in the series based on the aggregated reviews as the sequels progressively and increasingly hewed closer to 80s action stars than Die Hard originally, with McLean becoming an invincible killing machine, surviving damage that would have killed his original incarnation. Die Hard uh, NPR called Die Hard a genuinely great movie whose legacy was tarnished by lackluster sequels. <sighs> Finally, the last bit of notes. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. According to The Guardian, the evolution of the action genre can be tracked by differences in each diehard sequel as McLean evolves from a human to, to superhuman. A comic book prequel and sequel were released. Die Hard Year One, which was set in 1976, chronicles R- McLean as a rookie cop, and A Million Ways to Die Hard, which is set 30 years after the original and features a retired McLean seeking out a serial killer. We finally made it, <sighs> and we're an d- hour in. I skipped three paragraphs. <laughs> I know you did. Proud of you, buddy. Uh. <laughs> Zach, read the first paragraph. Okay. <laughs> I'll read the rest. So we're starting the plot, boys. Woo! Hour yeah, in yeah, the plot. Actually, Let's go. Yeah, we're an hour <laughs> in. The plot's finally fucking here. Yeah, man. This is what happens when we take stuff off of IMDb and Wikipedia. Hey, man, I like to give us information and stuff to talk about. But a lot of it was useless. Only some of it was useless. Thank you. On Christmas Eve, 1988... NYPD detective John McClane arrives in Los Angeles, intending to reconcile with his estranged wife, Holly. 
He is driven to the Nakatomi Plaza by his driver, Argyle, to attend a Christmas party held by Holly's employer, the Nakatomi Corporation. Argyle uh, waits for McLean in the garage while McLean changes clothes in the tower is seized by German radical Hans Gruber um, and his heavily armed team, Carl and his brother, Tony, uh, Francisco, Theo, Alexander, Marco, Christoph, Eddie, uh, Yuli, uh, Heinrich, Heinrich. Heinrich, Fritz, and James. Those inside the tower are taken hostage, except for McLean, who slips away. Hell yeah. Gruber um, interrogates Nakatomi executive Joseph Takagi 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 for the building's vault code. Gruber reveals that his plan is to steal 640 million equivalent to 1.3 billion in 2019. Oh my god. Or if you want to that's about 1.4 billion in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, the untraceable bear bonds, uh, the, uh, in untraceable bear bonds, the gang is presenting to the terrorists to, uh, conceal the, th- uh, the theft, uh, Takagi refuses to cooperate and is executed. Theo is tasked with breaking into the vault, but Clean, who is secretly watching events, triggers a fire alarm in a failed attempt to summon the authorities. Tony is sent after McLean, who kills him, obtaining his weapon and radio while he uses to contact the L.A. Police Department. Uh, Sergeant Al Powell is sent to investigate. And otherwise, guys, this is the scene where he sends him down the elevator and goes, I now have, I a, have machine a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I, I think my Hans Gruber is much better than most people will think my Hans Gruber is. That's because I like Hans Gruber a lot. My Hans Gruber is not good, but I will keep doing it. And you'll see that in my notes. So, uh, John McClane kills Marco and Heinrich recovering the latter's bag of C4 and de- detonators. Seeing nothing amiss, Powell uh, prepares to leave when McClane drops Marco's body on his patrol car. Powell summons a SWAT team, which lays siege to the building, but are neutralized by gunfire on the ground floor and anti-tank missiles fired by James and Alexander. McLean throws some C4 down the elevator shaft. The explosion kills the pair, ending the assault. Holly's co-worker, fucking idiot, Harry Ellis, attempts to mediate between Gruber and McLean uh, for the latter's surrender. Uh, McLean refuses, and Ellis is killed. Gruber checks the explosives installed on one of the roof encounters. McLean, he portrays himself as an escape hostage. McLean offers him a gun, but Gruber attempts to shoot him. The gun is empty. Carl, Franco, and Fritz arrive. McLean kills Fritz and Franco, but badly injures the shattered glass by running around on his feet and is forced to flee, abandoning the detonators. Um, outside, FBI agents commander, uh, commandeer the situation, ordering the power to shut off. As Gruber had anticipated, the power cuts, disables the final vault's lock. His team collects the bonds. Gruber demands a helicopter to be flown to the roof. The FBI agrees, intending to send a gunship helicopter to eliminate the group, regardless of collateral damage to the hostages. Dude, there's a scene in this where the FBI goes, we're estimating about 25% of the hostages will die. And one of the guys goes, that's fine. And I'm like, I what? Know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? That's fine. <laughs> That's the risk I'm willing to take. <laughs> yep, I was like, damn, son. <laughs> All right, read the next one, <clears throat> baby. As uh, well, uh, as disappointed, disappointed McLean contacts Powell. He tells McLean that he's accidentally shot a child once while on patrol. 
and has and has not used his gun since. McLean realizes Gruber intends to detonate the rooftop, killing the hostage and FBI agents to fake his team's death. Uh, Carl confronts McLean. <clears throat> um, as they fight, Gruber sees a news reporter by but by reporter Richard Thornburg on McLean's children and deduces that he is Holly's husband. Which is an awesome scene. I I fucking hated that guy. Dude, like, he's oh. he's butt cheeks. In my notes I was like he deserves a punch. Yeah, he, <laughs> he deserved it. The hostage and uh, hostage are escorted to the roof. Gruber keeps Holly with him during the long flight. Uh, McLean seemingly kills Carl. He kills uh Yuli and rescues the hostage just before Gruber detonates the roof. Detonate. Destroying the FBI helicopter. Meanwhile, the t- uh, meanwhile Theo retrieves their getaway vehicle from the parking garage, but is neutralized by Argyle, who has been following the events on his radio. Hell yeah. A weary and battered John McClane finds Holly and Gru- Hans Gruber and the remaining men, Eddie and Kristoff. After knocking Kristoff unconscious, McClane confronts Gruber and is ordered to surrender using his submachine gun. Uh, ordered to... Yeah, his submachine gun. John McClane um, is... Oh my god, McLean does this to spare Holly, but distracts Gruber and Eddie by laughing and grabs a concealed weapon taped to his back that contains two bullets. McLean uh, wounds Gruber and kills Eddie. Gruber crashes through a window, but grabs onto Holly's wrists. He makes a last-ditch effort to attempt to kill the pair, but McLean unlapses Holly's watch that she got for Christmas, and Gruber falls to his death on the streets below. Outside, McLean and Holly meet Al Powell. Carl emerges and attempts to shoot McLean, but fucking Powell shoots him. Thornburg arrives and gets punched in the face. And Argyle crashes through the parking lot garage door, the limo leaving John McClane and ha- and Holly. Hell fucking Jesus Christ, yes. <laughs> yes, okay, yeah. So, uh, guys, one hour and five minutes in. And now we got our mid-movie notes. Which, which takes us about, like, uh, 20 minutes to get through because we talked about each and every single one of them. <laughs> They're real quick. So, first note, man, I fucking love this film. Next note, this is definitely a Christmas film. Anyone who thinks otherwise is wrong. Drunk Christmas party, gotta love it. Coke is everywhere in California. Even even in the soda form. (laughs) Yeah, oof, marital quarrels. John talks to himself a lot. Hans when? When Hans? Hans is rolling the fuck up. Bye-bye guard. Even Hans lacks, even Hans's lackeys have flair. With, uh, this is when Theo uh, hops over and starts doing some fun shit. Uh, his second in command is actually a ballerina in real life. Yeah, uh, fists fists with your toes. Um, they just come in guns a blazing uh, and get fucking results. Uh, Hans doesn't even show up until his dudes take it the fuck over, man. Hans is such a menacing presence. Cocaine Harry is probably freaking the fuck out. <laughs> uh, I love how Holly is trying to hide Joseph, but he's the only old Asian man in the building. No, <laughs> There's one other guy. No, There's there one like other two. guy. There yeah, but they're two. not that old. But they're not that old. It's old. just funny where she's like, she's like, Joseph, don't. I'm like, he's the only Asian dude. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Uh, God, I love Hans Gruber. He's so fucking cool. Uh, John has the best reactions to things, truly, in every man protagonist. Drop it, dickhead, it's the police. Such a great line. Do you think John forgot to put his shoes back on, or did he just uh, leave them off on purpose for stealth? And I went, there we go, he forgets when he tries to on the other dude's shoes. Killing loot. John plays too many video games. Now I have a machine gun. Uh, how do you think people... How do people not think this is a Christmas movie? Um, I would never hide on top of an elevator. Detonators. 
Reginald Val Johnson doesn't even show up until halfway through and people remember him more than Argyle, who is present throughout. Uh, John goes to the roof like three times. <laughs> no fucking shit, lady. Does it sound like I'm ordering a fucking pizza? Such a good line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this this man is stocking up on Twinkies like it is no tomorrow. <laughs> it's for my wife. Uh-huh. He wastes a whole clip baby. of ammo on a door. Oh. Nah. Uh, he wastes a whole clip on a door. Ammo? Nah, never heard of it. <laughs> I would be the worst diehard, man. John has no fears except for loving his wife. <laughs> I believe Bruce or the stunt dude broke their ribs or dislocated some fingers on this jump. I don't know if that's true. I just remember hearing something about that. Mm. A lot of great one-liners here. John goes to the same rooms a lot. That's just because of filming constraints. Uh, but also he goes to the same rooms a lot in general. Um, the car crashing was apparently real. They damaged a real police car by accident. Whoops. Oh, are you talking about when the body fell on top of the car? They just like threw that bitch in reverse. Yeah, yeah no. When um, uh, when they no, when they uh, th- yeah, when Al throws the car in reverse and it drives off the thing. It wasn't supposed to fall off that. It was just supposed to hit the fence. But then it drove too far and they actually like damaged the car a lot. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Are they supposed to be Austrian or German? I forget. Oh wait, they're German. Um, the boss's zigzag table is crazy. <laughs> This man drops a body on a cop car. Welcome to the party, pal. Uh, I wonder if they teach the classic car drift in the academy. You know what I mean? Like, when all the cars drive and they all go, and they, like, stop somewhere. Probably. I wonder if they teach that. (laughs) Probably. This is Rickman's first major role, and he is one of, if not the best character. Detonator. Every time they say detonator, I put it in my notes. (laughs) Um... They name dropping Arnold like he wasn't totally up for the role. When was wonder who? Wh- wh- when what? was his name dropped? Oh, they go. Uh, I th- think. Um, oh God, Bruce Willis is saying something to Al, and they talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, and fucking. I was like, I wonder who they would have referenced if he took the role, like Stallone. Probably. Um, Hans is a reasonable terrorist, Mister Cowboy. They are German. There we go. Glass. Who the fuck cares about glass? There's a scene where Bruce Willis says that, and then he steps on it. I wasn't the only one who was butt-fucked on... I wasn't the one who was butt-fucked on national TV, Dwayne! <laughs> and that was when the um, the news guys are there recording this SWAT thing getting blown up. Yeah. Harry was a waste of oxygen. Glad he's dead. Detonators. Hans's American accent is great. The scene is so tense and wonderful. Detonators. Uh, news guy sucks ass and deserves the punch. Hans also, Hans's realization is so well-acted. Um, we're going to need more FBI guys, I guess, when the helicopter blows up. That's such a good line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess, we're going to need more FBI guys, I guess. <laughs> uh, love that fall. I hope that's not a hostage. I'm dying. Like, when, uh, when the cops see the hostage, when, uh, Hans Gruber falling, one of them just goes, oh, I hope that's not a hostage. That is such a fucking good line. <laughs> yeah, they're not like, oh, no. <laughs> Twenty five percent. That's a that's a good loss. It's just shit. More paperwork. Um, when how when uh John McClane hugs Al, it's like Holly is just like, who the fuck is this? Uh, pal coming in clutch. The Johnsons are labeled as Big Johnson and Little Johnson in the credits, and I fucking love that. Mm-hmm. And so much Christmas music. This is a Christmas movie. Huh. <sighs> All right. Okay. That was only that was only six minutes. <laughs> I, I ran through mine quick. Okay. I um I have. Asking the baby can handle a little sip, bitch, like, you're pregnant, why? Um, doesn't even say bye to the housekeeper, so nanny when she calls them. 
She goes like, oh, just you're the best. Click. Cool. Not high or yeah. by. Um, yeah. uh, sits in the front seat of a limo. This is actually a cool little note that I wanted to bring up. So the reason why John sits in the front of the limo, the uh, writer said he wanted him to be an everyman who doesn't know really how where limos work, and he's, they also wanted it to be a little bit funny. So there's a scene where he gets in. This is a deleted scene. He sits in front of the limo and Argyle questions him, but then uh, it just jumps into this in general. So, yeah, Bruce Willis's character, John McClane, sits in the front. Because one, comedy, and two, he wouldn't know where to sit in a limo. He thinks it's impolite to sit in the back. So he puts the bear in the back seat, and him and Argyle sit in the front. <laughs> Smoking with the windows up. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> um, Ar- Argyle is the limo driver we all need, next to Nathan, of course. Nathan for limo driver. <laughs> um, don't what I, I don't know what he was expecting when woman uh, uh, changed her last name after a divorce. Did not realize it, it wasn't a divorce yet. Yeah, no, they were working on it. Um, homie was doing coke on his boss's desk. <laughs> <laughs> um, is your office just a sex slash dung, uh, drug chamber? Because there's yes. that one point where the fucking couple barges in. <laughs> and they're about to have sex. Like, why? Why is it just her fucking office? It's the closest office and it probably has a big desk. Or a couch. Uh, Die Hard has, um... Been driven into my head so many times, but I will say Hans is one of the best movie villains ever. Um, not even a minute into taking over the lower floor, the whole squad moves with such with such swagger. Yeah, they're great. Um, I thought I remember the office workers seeing um, uh, the the Kagi die, but no, I but, just hear the gunshot. Yeah, but I I but I guess that was just um for Harry. What, what I remembered. Yeah, yeah um, some of them see Harry die because it's in it's in the Holly's office when that happens. Uh, was always wanted this to be a part of the Family Matters lore with Carl Winslow. <laughs> um, I, yeah, and man. then, um, this is my last bit. This was when, um, Holly came in to talk, so this is when I cut my notes off. Because I was yeah. back and forth doing stuff. Um, mm. at least Hans uh, told Dick bringing yourself out for the pregnant lady and taking groups to the bathroom. Hell yeah, it was some good shit. I was All like, right. good for you, man. Alright, guys, now on to... The reviews. Hell yeah, dude. We're on the home stretch. So, Die Hard received mixed reviews on its release. Dave Keir said uh, the film was inspired by Alien and Robocop, creating an elegant, humorous, sentimental design. Though the perfection of its form, it lacked personality of its own. False. Um, Karin James called it excessive, drawing on every possible action genre trope. Though the film... Uh, makes it exceedingly stupid and but escapist fun. Kevin Thomas criticized it for being a highly calculated designed to sacrifice quality in exchange for citing plot holes and the lack of credibility. He said that it held a um, potential uh, an intelligent thriller, but instead became an increasingly dis- dis- oh my god depiction of increasingly numbing violence and carnage. Fuck you guys, Dark Hearts, awesome. <laughs> All right, um, now Hunter, cause you gave it a good review. Read that good review. Best review. So, Peter Travers from People Magazine says, Willis gleefully gleefully strips down uh, the action movie to a pretend game for children who like to fire guns and shoot bad guys. Machismo may never be the same. Uh, Because I gave it just a .5 lower than yours. Mm -hmm. Kevin Thomas of the LA Times. As a grand flourish of cinematic technique it is awesome as a human drama and it is disgusting and silly a mindless depiction of carnage on an epic scale 
Yeah, we got the uh, better review from um, what Kevin Thomas said before. So, my review is 10 yippee motherfuckers out of 10. I went for the best one and the easiest one. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> and then uh, I was I, I had a bunch of ones I had in mind. I, I was originally I wanted do, to do I wanted to do ten detonators out of ten, but I feel like that joke got stale. <laughs> I was um I, I was originally gonna do, um, uh, m- my number. Now I have a machine gun. Ho ho ho, out of ten. But I did nine point five. Nine million terrorists in the world, and I gotta kill the one with smaller feet than my sister. Out of such 10. a good line, such a good line. I, I like how both of us forgot to put out of. Wait a minute, you put out a ten on yours. I forgot. I I didn't put out a ten on mine, but definitely like, but definitely like having smaller feet than my sister. Like made me chuckle. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you guys for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at Box Office Losers and Twitter at Box Losers for like updates and stuff. Zach, where can we find you on the interwebs? You can you can find me at Dark Shadow Zake literally everywhere. When I say everywhere, I mean you can punch that into any random social media, and I no doubt a profile of mine will pop up. MySpace. I, I'm also <laughs> a contributor for the Sports Hit List. You can watch that um, every now and then whenever I appear. So yeah. Now, where can they find you, Hunter? You can find me at Scruffy Mooseman on, like, 90% of the social medias. I forget which ones specifically besides, like, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, not Facebook. You can just find me at my name. But um, you can find me Tuesdays at 10 a.m. <clears throat> on uh, Pound That Button, which is a PlayStation podcast. You can find me Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on um, Android's Amazing Podcast, which is a comic book podcast. And coming in 2021... A Star Wars podcast that I'm starting up soon, which there'll be more info on when it drops. Maybe when it drops, me and Zach will cover a Star Wars movie. We'll see. Yep. And, guys, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday here from the Box Office Losers. Um, yeah, this has been a fun time. We, I, I might put together a year-end review of some of the funniest moments. Yeah, for sure try. Um, doubt, there's barely any ones to really pick from, to be honest. Besides, like, like, like the the one liners we did recently, fuck you, Hunter. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah well, guys, we only had a little bit of episodes. We, so. we do appreciate you watching and listening. Uh, so yeah, we'll see you all next week. A uh, bye bye. Bye bye. Yippee ki motherfucker.